Romans 5, 6 to 11, God demonstrates his love toward us as sinners. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for what you've accomplished for us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We come because of him. We come because he has shed his blood on behalf of our sins. We are forgiven. We are saved. We are reconciled. We are no longer your enemies. We're no longer considered unrepentant and perverse sinners. But Lord, you have justified us, declared us righteous, granted us eternal life, forgiveness of sins, justification, and the hope of eternal life in in being with you forever and ever. Thank you for these blessings. Thank you for what you've given to us that we do not deserve. We know, Lord, who we are, what we used to be. We thank you, Lord, that now you have changed us and conformed us and are conforming us into the image of your Son. As we study these words, we pray that we'll be reminded of who we uh, were and now who we are in Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, he introduced the fact that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and This happens by grace through faith in Christ. We are justified in that way. And there are two results of exultation or rejoicing or happiness, gladness that we ought to have. One in verse two, exult in hope of the glory of God. What God has in store for us, we should rejoice in that or exult in that. And the second is, in verse 3, exult in our tribulations. Exult or rejoice in our tribulations. These are ironies because, or at least the one in verse 3, the second one is an irony because we don't often think of our faith as a way to exult in tribulations. We don't often think of faith in Christ that way. In fact, it becomes a deterrent to people believing in Christ. If you tell them that a part of the gift of God to you is that now as a Christian, you are going to rejoice when you are afflicted, when you suffer, when you are persecuted, when you face hardships, 
that will deter them from believing in the gospel. It will do so. But not for us, we who have had a transformed heart. It will not happen to us, but we will persevere, demonstrate character, uh, continue in hope, and this will not disappoint us. This is what he has said in verses 1 to 5. All by the grace of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Well, he continues to explain what we have now in Christ. In verses 6 to 11, we also notice a third use of the word exult, or we exult in verse 11. We also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 2, the first time he said it, it was in relation to what God has done for us. In verse 3, we exult because of what God is doing to us or what he is transforming within us through tribulations. And then finally, in verse 11, we exult in God himself because ultimately, without God and without a proper relationship to him, reconciliation with him, knowledge of him, communion with him, unless we have that, life is worthless. Life is meaningless. We have nothing else if we don't know God and rejoice in God himself, in his own person, not in what he gives to us, though there are things he gives to us, but who he is. This is what he says in verse 11. We exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were unable to save ourselves, we were helpless. That At that time, Christ died for us. We were helpless because we were ungodly. We were helpless because there was nothing that we could do to earn salvation. Romans 8, verse, verses 6 to 8. Romans 8, 6 to 8. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We were helpless and ungodly and the result was death, hostility toward God, inability, inability to obey the laws of God. And he says, in the flesh, we cannot please God. That's why he said in Romans 5, 6, we were helpless. While we were helpless, that did not prevent God from acting on our behalf by sending Christ at the right time in history to die for us, the ungodly people. We who were devoid of God, God still provided the death of Christ at the right time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, at the right time. At the right time. Galatians 4, 4. Verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Here is the amazing part of it. Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. 
No one needs to die, in verse 7. One will hardly die for a righteous man. If we were perfect, if we were sinless, there would be no need for a death to occur on our behalf. That's what he means by righteous. He doesn't mean declared righteous, which we are. He means perfect in righteousness, absolute righteousness, which only Christ had. None of us has that, but Christ did have that. And in that way, if that's the case, then there is no need for anybody to die. So that's why he says in seven, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, for an absolutely perfect, sinless man. That's not going to happen. It doesn't need to happen. Verse 7, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare to die or dare even to die. Now, the good man here, he means the average good man in life. He's not talking about good because God transformed you or God converted you or God gave you eternal life. He's not talking about good man in that sense. He's talking about the average upstanding citizen, the the one who's a a husband and a father, provides for his family, he goes to work, he minds his own business, he's not a troublemaker, he's not a rabble-rouser, he's not a criminal, he doesn't cheat and steal, he doesn't murder, commit adultery. There are plenty of good men in that sense, both in Christianity and outside of Christianity, who are not true believers. There are plenty of good men. Now, if there were a man like that, and he were to be attacked and you respect him, you honor him, you like him, he's been kind and good to you, if he were to be attacked and his life were to be threatened, you might do something to intervene and help him out. And in the meantime, while helping him out, that criminal might put you to death. You might do something like that. You might do it for a good man. That's what he means. Though perhaps for the good man, societal good or civic good man, for that kind of a man, someone would uh, dare even to die. Yes, that happens. In fact, this happens with soldiers in every nation, right? In every nation, soldiers are enlisted to protect the societal upstanding good citizens to protect his own countrymen in that sense. Soldiers do put their life on the line. Police officers put their life on the line in this sense. And even common citizens do that when they are protecting one another. Now that might happen, but it doesn't need to happen to a perfect man. Verse 8, but that's not what we were. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love was demonstrated toward us in that Christ died for us, which is similar to verse 6. Now, who are we in verse 8? In verse 6, he says, helpless and ungodly. In verse 8, he calls us sinners. We were helpless, we were ungodly, and we were sinners. And by sinners, he doesn't mean now we don't sin anymore. But by sinners, he means those who were practicing sin, those who indulged in sin and made no attempt to overcome sin 
in the light of the true knowledge of God. That's the sense in which he means sinners. So while we were in that condition, before we were converted, before we had anything to give to God, to present to God, or to accumulate any number of good deeds, we had none of that. He demonstrated love toward us. All of this is to show that he initiated the relationship. He initiated reconciliation. He initiated fellowship. He initiated showing love, giving love to us. God did so. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. This is the Apostle Paul's way of saying the same thing in verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Christ was provided for us. The saved, the believers, the elect, we were all at one time before we were saved, helpless, ungodly, and sinners. We were that way. But now we're not. Because what has happened? Christ died for us. This means that Christ's death was applied specifically to us. Christ's death was applied to us. By us, in verse 8, and in this context, he means the church, the elect, the sheep, the redeemed. He means us. He doesn't mean every individual in the world. He does not mean that because every, in, in, every individual in the world will not be reconciled to God. And that is the subject of this section, verses 1 to 11. He focuses on reconciliation in verses 10 and 11. But he already introduced it in the preceding verses. We have peace with God, verse 1. Peace involves reconciliation, and reconciliation involves peace. This is what we have. Verse 9. He's now showing us by what has been accomplished what is guaranteed. He's going to, by comparison, highlight and emphasize the point that we are guaranteed this life. How do we know so? Not only by the death of Christ, but by the resurrection of Christ. Verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. It was the death of Christ, verses 6 and 8. And then he says specifically, what element of his death was applied to us? Verse 9, by his blood. His blood justifies us. Why is it? His blood, because life is in the blood. Leviticus 17, 11. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh 
is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. That which in the Old Testament was by animal sacrifice signifying the coming death of Christ, the blood of Christ, is actually applied to our souls in Romans 5, verse 9. He's saying that having now been justified by his blood, if his blood was not poured out, if his blood was not shed, if he never died, then we could never be justified. But because he died, we can be justified. We are justified. It will happen. His death relates to our justification. That's why the death of Christ or the cross of Christ, the crucifixion, must never be mitigated, must never be minimized, must never be denied. His death should never be denied. And even specifically his blood. Though it's not common in our daily talk to talk about blood, when we think of ourselves as Christians, we must talk about blood. And we must talk about the blood of Christ. If we have disdain for the blood of Christ, if we despise talking about the blood of Christ, there is something wrong with our soul. We should never be removing this topic of the blood of Christ from our conversations. It was necessary because it was necessary to justify us. So if his blood justified us, what will his life accomplish for us? The two are woven together. The two of them cannot be separated. His death accomplished some things and his life accomplishes some things. He is, in verse 9, implying life, which he mentions specifically in verse 10. He said, by his life. In verse 9, he says, the wrath of God through him. But in verse 10, he says specifically, by his life, meaning his resurrected life. His resurrected life. What did it do in verse 9? It justified us and it saved us from the wrath of God. The wrath or the anger of God against us because of our sins. This wrath of God was introduced to us in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That wrath of God has been removed from us so that we never experience it. Instead of his wrath, we have his peace. Instead of his wrath, we have his Holy Spirit, we have his grace. Instead of his wrath, we have justification. Instead of his wrath, we have reconciliation. We have all of this instead of the wrathful punishment of God inflicted on us. Why? Because of Christ. Through him, through Christ, verse 9. He further illustrates, verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
Now he calls us by another name, enemies. He said helpless, ungodly, sinners, and now enemies. We were his enemies. That's why wrath was heaped on us or sentenced against us, the wrath of God, because we were his enemies. If you are friends, then there is no wrath. But if you are enemies, then there is wrath. There is anger. There is something that you want to do to mete out justice to your enemy. And you won't do that unless you are angry with your enemy. We were his enemies, but now we're reconciled. And how are we reconciled? Through the death of his son. If his son didn't die, shed his blood, we are not reconciled to God. But because he did die for us, we are reconciled to God. We're no longer enemies, but we are friends. We are allies. We are reconciled to him. If this happened because Jesus died for us, then what's the implication of Jesus rising from the dead? What's the implication of his life? The implication of his life and the application of his life, he said in John 14, 19, because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also. He also said in John eleven twenty five that he is the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. That means that we have his eternal life first as a pledge to us by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And this pledge will be fulfilled. The full payment will come to us or the full transaction will be accomplished in us when he returns. And when he returns, we will also rise from the dead and we will have a resurrected body, immortal and glorified like his forevermore. He says that this is even more sure because of his resurrected life. In Romans 1, 5, he said, uh, Romans 1, 4 and 5, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. He's declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Philippians 3, Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Philippians 3, 20 to 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. We shall certainly be saved by his life. Why do we have to believe not only in the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ? 
Because if he didn't rise from the dead, how can we know that he actually accomplished by his death what he said his death meant for us? And how can we have assurance that his death and his life will be applied to us? His life. How can we know so? Well, he's declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. How? By the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. We believe in the resurrection of Christ for this reason. If we don't, we are miserable men, hopeless men, men of, of all men worthy to be pitied, as the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that what we're believing is vain and worthless. We may as well eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Which he also says in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Just live it up if all of this is fake and false. Just live it up. Don't worry about anything. But if all of this is true, everything depends on Jesus' death and resurrection. Our whole life is dependent on that. Now, if we understand all these truths correctly, verse 11, Romans 5, 11, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We now receive it. We now enjoy it. We now understand it. We are now ex experiencing day by day its implications, this reconciliation. So does this cause us to be dry, dull? Does it cause us to be bland people? No, verse 11. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have this true joy in God through Christ. We have true joy in God through Christ. There is nothing better than to think about God. There is nothing better than to think about who He is and what He has done for us in Christ. There's nothing better in life. There's nothing better that we can do with every waking moment. There's nothing better that we can do even in our dreams at night. There's nothing better that we could do at any moment of the day than to think about God and to talk about God. And when we do so, he says, we exult. It's not painful. It's not a chore. It's not a burden. It's not slavery to think about God. This is the difference in the attitude and this is the difference even in the emotion. You know, we often speak of emotionalism and feelings, dependence on feelings as being wrong. And they are wrong. They are wrong because when we are captivated by emotions, then we're not conforming ourselves to evidence, truth, Facts, right? True knowledge, we're not doing so. In that sense, emotionalism is wrong and false. But 
If we truly know what God has for us and what God has done for us and who God is, our God is, the true and living God, no other God exists. The God we have come to know, He exists. Then it will, based on the truth, based on faith in the truth, it will cause us to exult, rejoice, be glad or happy, whichever words you want to use. It will cause us to be that way. We will have that kind of peaceful, joyous contentment when we think about who our God is in Christ. Shall we be that way? Founded on fact. Feelings founded on fact are true feelings. All else is false. This is what God has done for us. He revels in it. Let's also revel in it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.